Welcome to the Word Encounter, episode 207. Uh, we finished with uh, chapter 22 yesterday, so let's jump right into chapter 23 of Luke. And it says, Jesus faces Pilate. Verse 1, then their whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. You see, uh, we, we recall at the end of chapter 22 that Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin, and they began to make all kind of accusations. Uh, the, the Sanhedrin was like a religious uh, governing council, if you will. And, uh, but they didn't have the authority to do what they wanted to do. They wanted to execute Jesus, but they lived uh, in the Roman Empire, and so they didn't have that kind of authority. So they brought him to Pilate, who was the governor of the territory, who did have the authority to render that type of verdict. It says in verse 2, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. Now, them accusing Jesus of misleading the nation and accusing him of calling himself the Messiah meant absolutely nothing to the Romans. That was not a capital offense. That was no offense, in fact. However, they threw in there opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, which Jesus did not. Remember, Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and God, uh, and, and unto God what is God's. So they lied. They lied about uh, uh, Jesus's perspective on paying uh, uh, the imperial tax. And so they wanted to make, like I said, a case against him so that Pilate would, in fact, uh, uh, render him guilty and therefore would execute him. And so Pilate, you know, asked Jesus a couple questions. He says, you know, in verse four, Pilate then told the chief priests and the crowd, I, I find no grounds for charging this man. So Pilate doesn't see anything with regard to what they're talking about. And so um, it says Jesus faces here at Antipas in verse 6. When Pilate heard this, I'll say that he was a Galilean. When Pilate heard that he was a Galilean, then he asked uh, if the man was a Galilean. Uh, finding that he was under Herod's uh, jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Now, remember, Herod was the one that had uh, John in prison and then had him beheaded because of his, um, I guess it would be his stepdaughter. And so... <clears throat> But uh, Herod was kind of fascinated with the, uh, with the things of God, with John, and he had heard about Jesus, and he was kind of fascinated about Jesus. And so he wanted to talk to Jesus, and so he did. He asked him some questions. And then it says in verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in a bright, or dressed him in bright, a bright clothing, and sent him back to Pilate. And so Herod didn't do what they wanted to do either. So Herod sent him back to Pilate. So Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, or Pilate talks to Jesus, doesn't hear anything offensive. He sends him to Herod. Herod talks to Jesus, doesn't hear anything offensive, even though they mocked him and whatnot. And Herod sends him back to Pilate. And then, and then it says in verse 12, that very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been enemies. So I guess they may have had some power struggles between them because uh, uh, they were the rulers, the leaders of adjacent territories and that sort of thing. I think Pilate was actually, uh, because he was of the, because he was Roman and of the Roman Empire, I think he superseded uh, Herod's authority, who was uh, part Jew. Um, and, uh, but they had been adversaries, the word says. Uh, but then they became friends. Why? Because they had a common problem. I'm not going to say they had a common enemy because Jesus wasn't really their enemy, but he was their common problem because uh, the people uh, wanted, uh, 
them to do to Jesus what was really unlawful. <laughs> so they wanted these rulers to be unlawful in executing uh, Jesus, so he was a common problem to them. And so um, Jesus or Barabbas, in verse 13, Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, You have brought me this man uh, as one who misleads the people, but in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod. And so Pilate is telling the people, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the people, look, we've investigated this man. We've interrogated this man. We found nothing. I haven't found anything. My counterpart, Herod, hasn't found anything. <laughs> you know, says neither has Herod because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. You know, then we go to verse 16. It says, therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. So he's done nothing, right? But yet Pilate says he's going to have him whipped. Why? That doesn't make any sense. Maybe he thought that that would appease them. I don't know. Verse 18. Then they all cried out together, take this man away, release Barabbas to us. And so there was a custom of the day once a year, they would release the prisoner um, for whatever reason. And so uh, Pilate gave them the choice. I can release Barabbas, who was a rabble rouser and a murderer, or I can release Jesus. You know, which one do you want? And so they were screaming out, Barabbas, Barabbas, you know, execute, crucify him, uh, crucify Jesus. But so release Barabbas. So they would have rather uh, that they uh, release a murderer than to release Jesus. Wanted to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So at this point, the crowd is whipped up into a frenzy. And if you've ever been in front of a frenzied crowd or if you've ever been a part of a frenzied crowd, trying to get that crowd to, to think rationally and logically is practically impossible. Verse 22, a third time he said to them, why? What has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. <laughs> Again, therefore, I will have him whipped. And then, why would he have him whipped if he didn't do anything? Again, maybe it was because he thought that this punishment would appease the people and he wouldn't have to uh, uh, sentence him to the death penalty. Verse 23, but they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified and their voices went out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. So now, Pilate's the governor of the territory. He can pretty much do what he wants to do with impunity. And so he didn't have to fear what the crowd wanted. And so we, we can't let Pilate off the hook for what he did because he didn't have to. See, the way to the cross. It says they led him away. They see Simon, uh, a Cyrenian. And so uh, a guy named si uh, Simon, who was a Cyrenian, he was African. And, and so uh, he was the one that had to carry Jesus' cross, um, that he was crucified before Jesus. So I guess this was kind of a parade. So he was down the streets. He was carrying the cross down the streets. And Jesus uh, was following him with his mock uh, crown of thorns and, and bleeding and whatnot. In verse 27, it says, A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting. Verse 28, but turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will, when they will say, Blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. 
For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will they do when it is dry? And so this was a saying of the day. For if they're doing this to me, and I have done nothing wrong, I am innocent of all that they're charging me of, what will they do to you? So Jesus is saying, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves, because a day is coming where people will say, blessed are the women who didn't have kids in this day and hour because of what's going on. We would be better off if the mountains fell on us, if the hills covered us, (laughs) as opposed to what's going to happen. Crucified between two criminals in verse 32. Two other criminals were also led away to be executed with him. Verse 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they know not what they're doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. And so they were, um, he was hanging there on the cross and, um, <clears throat> and they were dividing up his stuff. And so Jesus is dying on the cross. And what is he doing? He's making intercession for the people that are crucifying him. <laughs> forgive them, Father, for they're ignorant. They don't know what they do. They don't know what they're doing. I don't know, man. I don't know. I have people standing in front of me, harming me and whatnot. And I'm going to make intercession for them. I'm going to plead with the Father for their salvation, for the elimination of their ignorance, for wisdom to come upon them so that they can see for their eyes to be open and their ears to be open so that they can see see and hear what the truth is. Man. Verse 39. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. (laughs) But the other criminal answered. See, the other one rebuked I don't know if it was his buddy. I don't know if he, re, he knew him or whatever, but he re, rebu- yeah, rebuked him. He says, don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? And then he says, we are punished justly. And so this is an honest criminal because he's saying we are being punished justly. In other words, we're, we deserve what we're getting because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, today you you will be with me in paradise. So here we have a criminal who obviously was evil and wicked. And he is uh, dying on on his cross. He's being crucified along with Jesus. And at his last hour, at the, 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 the final stages of his life, he is eligible for salvation. If that doesn't get across the point that it's never too late, I don't know what else will do it. Now, some people think that, okay, I'll play God, right? You know, when I say that, that doesn't mean they're going to play being God. That means they're going to try to play God. They're going to try to uh, um, uh, manipulate God. They're going to try to do things behind his back, right? They're going to try to get over on God. See, so we're going to do all kind of dirt and, and evil and wickedness and, and whatnot while we're alive and, and virile and have our strength and everything. And then on our deathbed, then we'll just confess 
and he'll forgive us and we'll get into heaven. <laughs> we'll do all of the dirt and all the dastardly stuff, all the conniving and manipulating and stealing and robbing and, you know, uh, 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 just all kind of dirt and whatnot. We'll do that uh, while we're healthy and, vi- uh, and virile and, and, and have energy and whatnot. But when we're about to die, then we'll repent and we'll be able to get into heaven, even though we did all this stuff during our lives. Well, I don't know if that is true or not, but to me, that would be a revelation of the heart and the intent. And I would, uh, I would believe that God would probably take that into account. Also, that's assuming that at the end of, uh, of the life of this person, they would be lucid and cognizant enough in order to make that decision. What if something happened suddenly? See, what if this was their plan to do all this stuff during their life and then at the end of their life repent to get into heaven, but they never got that opportunity because they died in an instant, you know, a car crash or, or, you know, something just instantly takes them out. And so they never have the opportunity to repent. See, I, I, don't, I don't believe you can, you can play God like that. See, I don't believe you can manipulate him like that. I don't believe you can get over on God like that. Because he knows the motives of your heart. The death of Jesus in verse 44. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three. Because the sun's light failed, the curtain of, um, the, curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. And so we went over this in the previous scripture. You know, when Jesus died, the curtain rent from top to bottom. This signified the end of the Old Testament ways. Or, or, or I should say the old covenant ways where you had to approach God through a priest, where the priest would make atonement uh, for the, uh, for the Israelite, uh, every Israelites once a year. Uh, the high priest would anyway for the people, uh, but they would have a system of animal sacrifices and during their festivals and whatnot uh, that would uh, allow them to atone for their sins. Uh, the blood of the animals would be spilt, and that would be the payment for their sins. All of that system, all that, that was over with the death of Jesus. Because Jesus' blood had the power to sustain uh, salvation and approaching God then and into eternity, into the future. And so the, the, the Old Testament, Old Testament, the Old Covenant ways of doing things was now obsolete. And the, the ripping of the curtain from top to bottom signified that man could now approach God directly. He did not have to go through an emissary. He did not have to go through a priest or whatever, but through the blood of Jesus, he could get to God directly. In verse 46, And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. And so here you had a Roman soldier witnessing all of this and saying, and, and witnessing the death and then how nature reacted to the death. And he was like, yep, <laughs> this dude was the real deal. The burial of Jesus. Verse 50, there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin. Joseph did not buy into what the Sanhedrin was doing to try to kill Jesus. He was, in fact, a disciple of Jesus. And, but obviously, he was outnumbered and in the minority. After Jesus died, he approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb, cut into a rock where no one had been placed before. And so Joseph was responsible for taking care of the body and then placing it in the tomb. 
And let's go to the last chapter, chapter 24, Resurrection Morning. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. And so what had happened was um, uh, women had gone uh, uh, to the tomb and whatnot. And while they were, well, let me just read what it says here. On the first day of the week, uh, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bringing the spices they had prepared. These are the women, uh, Mary, Mary Magdalene, and they prepared spices. Remember, you know, there was no, um, well, when people would die, and their body would start to decompose, there was an aroma, an odor. And so they would use spices and whatnot to prepare the body in order to mask the aroma. It says they found, when they came, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. Now, in, 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 in Matthew or Mark or both of them, it says, well, even those were different. It said there was one man. Matthew, I think it said uh, he descended from heaven and, um, and he was in the tomb. I think it was a mark. They said he was sitting on the rock. And so this is in the tomb, but this is saying these are two men. Okay. And so remember, these are eyewitness accounts and you can't, eyewitness accounts sometimes differ a little bit, but the main themes seem, uh, tend to be the same. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living for the, living, for the living among the dead, uh, asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee. Returning from the tomb, they reported these things to the eleven and all the rest. So they, they were excited but terrified. They went back and they told the eleven. Remember, Judas has hung himself, so he's not, no longer with them. And so instead of twelve, there's eleven. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. See, there was something that resonated in Peter's spirit that was like, okay, my, my colleagues are not believing this, but no, 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 no. Peter gets up and he runs to the tomb. When he stopped to look in, he saw only the linen clothes, so he went away amazed at what had happened. The Emmaus disciples in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself uh, came near and began uh, to walk along with them. And so these are disciples from Emmaus. I guess they left the room and they're going back uh, to their village and they're discussing and debating and arguing with regard to did he rise? Did he not rise? Is he alive? Is he not alive? Was he really the, you know, the Messiah? I can imagine this discussion going on between these two guys going back. And as they're discussing, Jesus comes right up and starts walking with them. But the word says, but they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this, uh, what is this dispute you are having with each other uh, while you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. Uh, the one named Cleopas uh, answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happen here in these days? And so Cleopas is talking to Jesus. He says, what do you mean what has happened? Are you the only one that doesn't know what has happened? <laughs> I can imagine Jesus saying, yeah, it happened to me. What are you talking about? But anyway, in verse 19, what things, Jesus asked them. So he said to them, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, uh, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to, to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. 
but we were hoping that he was the one who was, bu- who was about to redeem Israel. Beside all this, it's the third day since these things happened. And so he said, we're, we were hoping that he was the one that was about to uh, redeem Israel. Now, you have to remember, from their perspective, what the redemption of Israel meant. See, I think it meant a redemption from uh, control by the Romans. In, in, in other words, that a Savior would come and uh, lead them in, in a conquest uh, of, uh, against the Romans in order to acquire their freedom from the Roman Empire. So I think they were looking for some kind of military um, event in order to free them uh, from being under Roman rule. And so they were thinking that he would be the one to do that. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early to the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. See? In verse 25, he said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then he began with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So Jesus rebuked them for not <laughs> for having little faith and not believing. And then he goes back to Moses and he starts interpreting the scriptures to explain to them how he was the fulfillment of those scriptures. In verse 30. And so they came to a house, they went in the house, they thought Jesus was going to leave, but they convinced them to stay. And it says in verse 30, it was as a, it was, yeah, it was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. So up until this point, they had no idea who this dude was. He explained the scriptures, explained the fulfillment of, uh, of how Jesus fulfilled the scriptures through Moses and the Old Testament prophets, and they still didn't recognize him. It wasn't until he broke bread and gave it to them, then their eyes were open, but then, boom, he disappeared. Verse 33, it says, That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven um, and those with them gathered together. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. The reality of the risen Jesus in verse 36. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst and he said to them, peace to you. So the two, um, the two guys go back to the 11, tell them everything that, that happened. And as they're telling them, Jesus is there <laughs> in their midst. And I guess nobody recognized. And so he said to them, peace be to you or peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. That probably would have been me. Verse 38. Why are you troubled, he asked them, and why do, um, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. So Jesus said, look, it's me. It's me. Touch me. Here, touch me. I'm flesh. I'm not a ghost. It's me. It's really me. See the holes? See where they see where I was pierced? It's me. <laughs> Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still, uh, 
Oh, but while they still were amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? So they gave him a piece of a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate in their presence. Ghosts don't eat. Spirits don't eat. See, you eat to feed the flesh. So he's I, I'm, I think that he's he's eating and whatnot to try to prove to them I'm, I'm flesh. I have risen. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a spirit. I'm flesh. Here I am. In verse 44, he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still uh, with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. See, he explained things to them. And I guess spiritually, he opened their minds so that they could now see and understand he also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead, uh, rise from the dead the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. And so here we see that it was necessary for Jesus to die so that he could rise. And in the risen Jesus now we have repentance because that was the proof over death. See, that was proof that one could die and then rise again. And so spiritually, you know, we can die to self, we can die to wickedness, die to evilness, but rise again uh, in the fulfillment of our destiny through Christ. See, so this is a key event so that repentance of forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Not ending there, but beginning there. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things, and look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, as for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. See, that will happen in the book of Acts. But he's telling them, stay in the city until you're released. Until until it's time. Stay here until it's your time. Don't don't get anxious and premature. Stay here until it's your time. The ascension of Jesus in verse 50. Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were uh, continually in the temple praising God. And so we see that they did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They went back to the temple with great joy and continuously, I would assume night and day, they were just praising God, just waiting and waiting and waiting for their time to do what Jesus has instructed them to do. And with that, we have concluded the book, the book, the book of Luke, the book of Luke. We have uh, concluded the book of Luke and, um, Man, J Jesus is just incredibly awesome. Just the wisdom, the, the, the insight, the foresight, the incredible. If, if you have not decided to commit your life to the Lord, there's no time like the present. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then the Bible says that you shall be saved and you will not be put to shame. And the next step is to find a group of believers, usually in the church, 
that are Bible-based. You're not going to find any perfect group of people. That does not exist. A lot of times people are looking for perfection in other people, knowing subconsciously that they won't find it. And if they won't find it, then they can't be held accountable to a standard that they don't believe can be met. And so they're sabotaging their efforts because they don't want to really commit their lives to God in the first place. So find a group of people, find a church that are committed to advancing in the things of the Lord. Again, they're not going to be perfect. It's not going to happen. Okay. But what you're looking for is a sincerity in the process. Are they sincere about pursuing the things of the Lord? In the process, you're going to be corrected along the way. You can't be corrected if you aren't doing things wrong. And so there are no perfect people. With that, we're going to conclude this episode and uh, pick it up tomorrow. So Jesus blessed me with another day of life. Should he not come between now and tomorrow? We'll see you tomorrow. Stay safe. Be blessed. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And let's pick it up in the next uh, episode of The Word Encounter. Bye-bye now.